This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. It was early in the morning. I was at home asleep, and I was awoken by the sound of my phone going off. And I picked it up, and there was a message on WhatsApp. It was just one word in Russian, and it said, Nashul, found. Immediately I knew what it was. It was the thing I had been hoping for for almost a year at that point but it was also the thing I was dreading. This is a story about a missing person, a 28-year-old man from Michigan named William Riley, who'd been working with the FBI. That message was quickly followed up by an email, and it said, we have found William, and unfortunately, he's dead. William, or Billy as he was called, had gone missing in 2015, He'd been missing for more than three years by the time our reporter got those messages. And over those years, Billy's parents desperately searched for their son. They tried to get the FBI, an organization Billy had been working with, to help find him. The agency didn't. But eventually, our reporter did. He found Billy in the middle of a war zone in Ukraine, in a grave covered in stab wounds. Today on the show, the disappearance of Billy Riley, one of the FBI's confidential sources, and how one reporter found him. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knutson. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, October 11th. Terry Riley is Billy's mother. And the story of her son starts with an unexpected visit. The doorbell rang. I opened the door and there was this man in a suit. He flashes out his badge and he says, I'm with the FBI. Oh my gosh. The FBI agent was there to investigate something alarming he'd found. Something that traced to Billy Riley. Billy grew up in Oxford, Michigan, the son of Bill and Terry Riley. And as a kid, Billy enjoyed fishing. He played baseball. He was also eager to learn about the world. I don't think he was like the average little kid. He was always interested in current affairs. We went to Disney World. Instead of wanting to go in, he preferred to sit with his grandfather in the hotel room listening to the news. As Billy grew up, his interests broadened. He taught himself Russian and Arabic. He started studying Islam. And these things seemed very foreign to his Midwestern Catholic blue-collar parents. I can't really say I was that enthusiastic about it. But I figured, you know, the boy's got to do what he wants to do. He was pretty good with Arabic and Russian. 
especially when he was behind a computer. Brett Forrest covers national security. He's the reporter who has spent the last two years finding Billy. And not only did he understand languages, but he also understood cultures. He understood the relationships between various groups in the Middle East, in Russia, in Ukraine, in the Far East. And he picked up all this stuff just because he was interested in it. Just from the Internet? Yeah. By 2010, 23-year-old Billy used his skills in Arabic and his interest in Islamic culture to go into the far corners of the web. He went on the Internet to find out what was going on with the wars, with... With with Al-Qaeda? Yeah, with Al-Qaeda and all of that. And I remember him telling me, wow, you know, these people are, like, you know, really bad. I am going to try to get into you know, one of their chat rooms and see what's going on. And then shortly after that, he said to me, you know, they gave me a password. I can get into their chat room. And I remember telling him, you know, don't do anything like that. You know, that is like really scary stuff. We're going to, you know, have FBI people on our porch trying to know what's going on. He kind of agreed with me. He said, yeah, maybe I better not do that. It's kind of scary. But Terry's prediction of FBI agents showing up on their front porch came true anyway. That FBI agent who rang the Riley's front doorbell was there because of some messages the U.S. had picked up in the Middle East. He asked, somebody has been on these Al-Qaeda websites and has been talking to these people, and we want to know what's going on. And what went through your mind at that moment when he told you this? I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I mentioned this to Billy earlier. We're going to have FBI on the porch, and I never really thought I was going to be right about that. During a raid on al-Qaeda, U.S. forces found a hard drive. And on that hard drive, they found communication between members of a terror group and a person using the Riley's IP address. When the FBI showed up, Billy explained to the agent how he had found his way into restricted jihadist chat rooms. The FBI agent, he was really impressed with, you know, what Billy had did and what he knew. And then he asked me, would you be willing to, you know, do any work for us? And yeah, I think Billy was kind of excited about that. He said, yeah, sure, you know. And he said, well, okay, um, give me your email and we'll get back with you. The FBI made Billy an offer to become part of a program called the Confidential Human Source Program. This program has been around for decades. After 9-11, the number of people who were confidential sources for the FBI reached roughly 15,000. Confidential sources are not employees of the FBI. They're often additional eyes and ears for the agency. They help agents get into criminal groups and collect evidence. And they usually get a small paycheck. But confidential sources are essentially freelance workers. And because of that, they don't have the same legal restrictions or protections that FBI agents do. Each source gets assigned an FBI handler, someone who keeps a close eye on them and hands out assignments. These assignments can range from meeting with FBI targets and wearing a wire to translating social media posts, infiltrating domestic terror cells, even going on missions abroad. When Billy agreed to join the program, he too was paired with an FBI handler 
who started giving out assignments. Billy did a whole host of things for the FBI. He would go online and find things related to terror networks that were, that were written in Arabic. And he would assess them and submit these reports to his handler at the FBI. Day and night, he would get phone calls, he would get texts, and they would want him to write these long reports. And how did you feel about his getting a job with the FBI? I, I, I was fine with it. It seemed like there was a future in it and yeah, something and that was... he enjoyed doing, so it seemed like he might have, we were thinking he might have found something that, you know, would really be good for him. Billy started looking for American citizens who were joining terror groups and passing those names along. He looked at the Boston Marathon bombing. He looked at the events in Syria as the Arab Spring exploded. This was when we first started to hear of this new group called ISIS. He started approaching terror recruiters and planners and facilitators outside of the country all over the world, not only in the Middle East, but in the Far East, in the Philippines, Indonesia, etc. It's so wild. <laughs> yeah. All from his parents' house. Billy also got an assignment to look into a war that was developing in eastern Ukraine. In 2014, Ukraine was in the midst of a revolution. Protesters had pushed out the Ukrainian president who fled to Russia. In the fallout, Russia invaded Ukraine and annexed a region called Crimea. Pro-Russian separatists started seizing territory in eastern Ukraine. At this time, Billy had been helping the FBI for four years. The FBI wanted Billy, as part of his ongoing duties, to look into what was happening in Ukraine. A plane had been shot down in a pro-Russian region of the country called Donbass. The Malaysia Airlines passenger jet was shot down in an area of Ukraine controlled by forces that are loyal to Russia. Pieces of the plane scattered across the road and field. A seat back with its television display cracked. 298 people were aboard that plane. The Ukrainian government released an audio recording it claims is a Russian commander declaring his men had shot down a plane. Russia denies any responsibility. People were pointing fingers at a separatist group called the People's Republic of Donetsk. At the FBI's direction, Billy started looking into them. Months later, in 2015, and the FBI denies that it ever asked Billy to do this, Billy decided that he wanted to get a closer look at what was happening there. And so he planned a trip to Russia, just over the border from Ukraine. What do you remember him telling you about the trip? He would not tell us more than he wanted to tell us, whether we asked him or not. So it's basically he was going, going to be involved in the humanitarian aspect of the people in Donbass. Yeah, and we asked him, I said, you're not going to be a soldier or anything? He says, oh, no. He says, I've never found, I don't do that kind of thing. And he told us he wouldn't be gone that long, not more than a month or so. And so there was no sense that his going to Russia had any connection with his work for the FBI. From what he told us, no. How did you feel about him going on this month-long trip? Absolutely not happy at all. No. Not in the least. There was one time I really tried to talk him out of it, but I, we couldn't do that. What did you tell him? I told him, I don't think it's a good idea. Why in the world would you do that? 
And he said, there's people starving there. I kept saying, I don't think this is safe. I think it's dangerous. He's no, no, no. You know, don't worry, you know. Yeah, I kept it's saying, be- don't worry. Despite Terry and Bill's pleas, in May 2015, Billy got on a plane to Moscow. He made one promise to his parents, that he would call or text them once a day while he was gone, which he did, right up until June 25th, 2015. We were on our bikes and the trail, you know, in our town. And I remember I stopped my bike, and, you know, I was texting with him. You know, he said, his plans have changed. He'll call us in the morning, you know, to let us know. I just said, okay, you know, we'll talk to you tomorrow. The next morning when he didn't call us, I just knew something had happened. I just knew it. It must have been an eternity, the the days after that. Oh, yes. Well, you know, we kept calling his number, calling him, calling him, texting him. Billy had gone silent. That was the last time that Terry and Bill heard from their son. But it would lead to the second time an FBI agent came to their front porch. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Right after Billy disappeared... His FBI handler shows up at the Riley's house in Oxford. He'd never been there. The parents had never met him. And when he comes in the door, of course, they're thinking something bad has happened to their son. You don't stop by our house as a coincidence after our son is missing. I was really, really scared. I said, either, you know, they found him and he's okay or they... Something happened to him. So then, you know, he came in the house, and I said, what happened? What do you know? He tells them he doesn't know anything about the trip to Russia. Then he was questioned us heavily. Why did Billy go there? What's going on? We really didn't even know that much. But I thought, well, you know, if they're going to help us, I mean, at that point, we both thought, wow, you know, if we've got the FBI, you know, looking for Billy, I said, you know, we felt a little bit lifted off our shoulders, like we've got some help. Billy's FBI handler returned multiple times over the next few months. He asked for the laptop and phone that the FBI had given Billy and for Billy's phone bill when it arrived. But the agent missed one of Billy's phones 
and Terry and Bill found it. On that phone, they found some messages between Billy and his handler. The handler texted Billy the name of three different apps, WhatsApp, Skype, and Viber. The handler also asked Billy if he had his trip itinerary yet. It turns out that the FBI's confidential sources are required to report all foreign travel to their handlers, even personal trips. So the FBI knew that Billy was on this trip, and those messages showed that they knew about it and that they were not telling the Rileys everything. And yes, the FBI did come to their house, but if the FBI was actively looking for Billy in Russia, they didn't give any indication of it. Billy's handler stopped returning the Rileys' calls, and they were left on their own to find their son. They tried everything. They hired a private investigator. They combed Billy's Facebook and social media sites looking for any clues or connections they could reach out to. They went to Russia to meet with the police. They sent a letter to President Vladimir Putin. And after the 2016 election, they wrote then-president-elect Donald Trump. At first, a lot of these places, these government offices, you know, they seemed to take an interest. Then as soon as we mentioned Billy was the FBI source, things got cut off. Like the State Department said, oh, yeah. We got, you know, we'll talk to the FBI in Washington. We'll get some something done. And then that was kind of, oh, no, we can't do that. And With no explanation. Yeah, it sounds like you tried everything. We did. We did. And I just, no one would help us. By the time Brett called, we were completely, completely out of ideas and hope and everything. Terry answered, and I heard her put me on speaker, and then I heard Bill get on. And when I identified myself, I could tell that they were both quite scared. I think they thought I knew something, and I was about to tell them. But ultimately, I think they were really pleased that um, here was somebody who might take an interest in finding out what happened to Billy. Brett had heard about the Riley's story and wanted to see what he could find out. Using the crumbs that Billy left behind, through text messages and credit card bills and more, Brett slowly began to piece together an outline of the steps that Billy took from the moment he landed in Moscow. Brett figured out a basic shape of Billy's trip and tried to interpret meaning from it. He flew to Moscow, and that very night he took a train. He went south to a city called Rostov-on-Don, which is about an 18-hour train ride south. He gets off there. He spends only a couple of days there. He gets back on another train, and he heads up north of Rostov-on-Don to the Volga region, and he visits several cities there, Saratov, Volgograd. What are those places like? Volgograd, you'll know by its former name, Stalingrad. It's sort of the major city on the Volga River. You know, Saratov is interesting because it has a history as a, a defense installation area. Do you know if he was just sightseeing or what brought him to these places? We, you know, we don't really know. We, he sent some pictures. They're sort of touristy pictures. But even though we have all that, he just wasn't as forthcoming with his parents as he could have been. And why is that? Is it because he wanted to come off as some sort of master of international intrigue? Was it because... He actually was. Or was it because he just wanted some privacy and he wanted to have his own experience? 
without telling his parents everything, like a lot of people that age. What do you know about what happened after those the trips to those two cities? While he was on that sojourn, he had a curious exchange with his mother. Billy had once told his parents about a meeting he'd gone to in the Detroit area. His FBI handler had invited him to dinner and introduced him to a Russian man. Billy told his parents that the dinner was in connection with the Boston Marathon bombing. He and his parents gave the Russian man a nickname. They called him the biologist or the scientist. And when Billy was in Russia, that nickname popped up in some of his texts. When he was traveling and texting his mother, she asked him, have you seen the scientist? And Billy said, I'm just paraphrasing. He said, I haven't seen him yet. He's teaching in this other town. And when I get there, and then there was an ellipsis in the text, and they never revisited the topic. Mm. So there was a hint that Billy, while in Russia, was meeting with somebody to whom the FBI had introduced him in the Detroit area. And what does Billy's mother say about that text exchange now? To them, they see that as proof that he was there in Russia doing work for the FBI. While Brett was able to put together some potential people Billy was hoping to meet with, and a rough outline of where Billy went, he still hadn't found Billy. What finally did lead Brett to Billy was on file back in Michigan, Billy's fingerprints. Brett got those fingerprints to a source of his. And on November 21st, 2018, Billy's fingerprints were matched to a body. The journal hired a forensics lab that confirmed the prints were a match. And in the days that followed, the Rileys and Brett learned more about how Billy died. He'd been stabbed to death in eastern Ukraine seven times. His body was stripped, wrapped in a plastic tarp, weighed down with rocks by rope, and his body was pitched into a reservoir. This took place in a region called the Donetsk People's Republic which is one of the two separatist regions in eastern Ukraine. It's not a country, but it behaves like a country. It's backed up by Russia. How did anybody find that body? The weighing down didn't work, and the body was floating on the surface of the reservoir. We don't know who found it or exactly when, but we do have some dates for when this John Doe appeared in the local morgue. And it was uh, a few weeks after the Rileys had last had contact with him. Once his body was autopsy, all the paperwork was done. I've seen all this paperwork, fingerprints, photograph, etc. He was then buried in a cemetery in a town called Shakhtyorsk. Which, which is, is in, part of the separatist region. Yes, which is in the separatist region. And he was buried there under a, you know, there was a grave marking, and written on it was basically unknown man. In April, 
the Rileys boarded a plane to Russia to bring Billy home. But even that turned out to be hard. The problem is, for them, nobody could figure out how to go through it logistically because Billy's remains were in this outlaw region. So they're dealing with the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, but they don't really know how to do it either. The United States can't go into Donetsk People's Republic. They have no diplomatic relationship because it's not a real country. (laughs) So the Rileys are stuck in the middle here. Ultimately, the Rileys say, we're just going to do it ourselves, and they cross the border into Ukraine, into the Donetsk People's Republic, quote-unquote. They didn't know who to bribe, if they should bribe any somebody, if they were going to get thrown in jail. You know, they got stuck in some terrible apartment with like barely had running water. They were at total wit's end. And it sounded like at some point they were almost down to their last dollar. They were there trying to make this happen for two months. Two months? Two months. Yep. These are not international operators. This is Bill and Terry from Oxford, Michigan. But they're determined to get this thing done. And they do. They go to the the graveyard where he's buried. You know, and then we saw her son's grave. It was a mound of dirt with a wooden cross. It said, unknown man. And I said, that's where her son's been for three and a half years. And I just knelt down by his grave and said, Billy, we're bringing you home. What has the FBI said to you about this case? Well, I've met with them several times, and I sent them quite a lengthy list of more than 100 questions. They didn't respond to any of them, even though we subsequently met. They just gave us a a statement that says the FBI did not send Billy to Russia on behalf of the Bureau. And that's all we have from them so far. Do you have any evidence otherwise? We don't have confirmation that the FBI sent him there, no. It could be a trip that he took solely on his own, and his death may have been the result of uh, a robbery or a fight or something sparked by drinking. And that's just one possibility. Another possibility is that he he could have seen this as uh, his sort of big chance to get a big score for his guys back in Detroit. A young guy with ambition out in the field thinking that he could really achieve something. That's something that we've thought about. But there are a lot of possibilities. You can also imagine, here's this American guy. Keep in mind, Russia has just annexed Crimea. They've fomented, supported this war in eastern Ukraine. They're pushing back against the West. And then all of a sudden, here's this kid who just stumbles into this camp in in Rostov-on-Don. And he's an American guy. He's this unassuming, naive figure maybe to us. But to the Russians, they see this guy as an FBI guy. And, and, and Billy just stumbles into this camp. So how do you think the Russian side is going to take it? And what are they going to do about it? These are all very plausible options. There are a lot of people in FBI's Confidential Human Source Program. And the question is, what protections do these people have? A lot of these people are U.S. citizens. And like Billy, 
they're risking something. And there are cases when, like with Billy, when something goes wrong, the FBI just drops them because the FBI is concerned how their behavior, which sometimes could be questionable, how it would reflect badly on the FBI. FBI agents have been instructed very clearly, if there's something you witness when you're running a source that feels fishy, don't risk it, just drop the guy. Now, that may take place right when that person most needs the FBI because that person may be following something that the FBI has asked him or her to do. That's the big thing for the Riley family. They feel like their son gave a part of himself to his country, and then in return, his country turned its back on him. They're dealing with not only the loss of their son, but the knowledge that their own government hasn't been telling them the whole truth about what happened to their son. So why is there no recourse? Why does the FBI turn its back on sources like Billy and without any explanation? What do you think they said when I asked, who's protecting these people? Nothing at all. That's all for today, Friday, October 11th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. We are your hosts, Ryan Knudsen. And Kate Leinbaugh. We're produced by Annie Minoff, Ricky Nevesky, Sarah Platt, and Willa Rubin. Our senior producer is Pia Gudkari. Annie Rose-Strasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole. Our theme song is by Haley Shaw. Additional music this week comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Haley Shaw, Peter Leonard, Bobby Lord, Marcus Bagala, and John Kimbrough from Gimlet. Special thanks to Nazanin Rafsanjani and Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. We're off Monday. See you on Tuesday.